On this week's TripCast, we'll talk about former Secretary of State David Whitley, Governor Greg Abbott's trustee veto pen, and the local and national elections on the horizon. But before we do, I want to thank our TripCast sponsors, the University of Texas at San Antonio. Happy birthday, UTSA. For over five decades, remarkable events and people have built an institution of excellence. Join us in celebration. Visit utsa.edu slash 50 for more. And Texas Children's Hospital. Join patient families and Texas Children's expert physicians on a journey to save lives. New episodes every Tuesday. Learn more at texaschildrens.org slash podcasts. Hello, this is Emma Platoff here on Wednesday, June 5th with your Texas Tribune TripCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hello. And politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. We'll also be taking your questions in real time via Facebook and Twitter. So send them our way using the hashtag TribCast. Patrick, I want to start with you. Uh, lawmakers have finally left Austin, but they've left some unfinished business, namely the agency that regulates Texas plumbers. The governor has the power to call lawmakers back to clean up that mess, but is he going to do it? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, this was a kind of one of those, at least for the casual observers of the session, something, one of those unexpected things that came up at the end uh, due to some uh, legislative strife. Uh, the law, lawmakers left town uh, without uh, voting to extend the life of basically the state's uh, plumbing board, which oversees the profession and handles licensing and, and training, I believe. Um, and so this has, um, you know, led to uh, a lot of uh, snarky comments and, and puns, but it's, uh, you know, <laughs> a somewhat pun. serious matter. And there are some plumbers who have been very vocal um, in wanting to resolve this issue so that effectively their in their profession is not deregulated in Texas in a matter of months. Um, and they've been calling on the governor to call a special session um, to handle this issue. Um, the governor, hours after Signe Dye, tweeted, no special session, all caps, period. <laughs> um, and so he's made clear keep where these, he's Keep these pants out of my picnic. <laughs> exactly. And uh, the news this week was he tweeted, and then he also s- talked about it in person at an unrelated press conference, uh, that he believes that he has, that there are tools that the legislature has made available to him to basically solve this problem uh, without a special session, um, basically allow the governor to it sounds like unilaterally uh, extend the, uh, the the life of the plumbing board through the next session or through, you know, whenever lawmakers can handle it next. Um, it's unclear, uh, you know, what exactly these tools are. He hasn't elaborated on that. Um, he's promised he's going to make an announcement soon. We don't know when that's going to be. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty, but it, it seems that he – uh, has found some kind of resolution to this that that he alone can, <laughs> I mean, can do. <laughs> I seem to remember two years ago when they had not passed a sunset safety net bill for the medical board and a couple of other agencies in which we went to a special session to avoid these agencies from going away. There's a there's a logic, there's a logic around problem here. If, if the governor can do this without statute and without the agency in statute, then why do we need the statute in the first place? And why would this even matter? And if if you need the statute, then I don't know what he can do. I mean, it's sort of interesting. What what supposedly happens during the next two years if plumbing is unregulated? What's the, I mean, down here on the street level, you know, what happens? I mean, is there any, I, I know the plumbers are upset, but 
Well, you know, the basically, if I, call a, if I call a plumber in March, I still get a plumber, right? I mean, yeah, but basically, nobody has to be licensed because the thing is, is the agency itself won't go away until 2020. It has this wind down period that starts in September. But the way this bill was written, that they did not pass, it basically kills the entire plumbing law code. Um, and so, without that, there's you know that's what sort of sets the requirements for licensing and insurance and all of that. And so that all goes away starting September 1st. Yeah. I mean, I don't know to the average person, uh, the average consumer, right. um, you know, how much this would change given that, um, I mean, I haven't called a plumber in a long time, but given that I, I would assume that the, uh, <laughs> I don't have any problems. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> uh, but, um, but given that the average consumer doesn't really think about this, I mean, uh, you know, as far as my knowledge of the average consumer goes, they're not like actively looking up whether the plumber that they call is, is, uh, certified or whatever the correct term is. I have a 99-year-old so. house. My plumber <laughs> knows my first name. Well, I guess you make the assumption that if you're calling a plumber for the first time, you're hoping that they are licensed. Sure, but way. are you vet, are you like <laughs> how discerning is the average the average consumer when it comes to these issues? Sure. Just I, fix the toilet. Yeah. I mean, that's really how those conversations go. I mean, but the thing is, plumbers don't just do toilets and stuff, right? Like they do gas lines and Oh, they all, do all kinds of yeah, more. they do all kinds of stuff and they do all kinds of really, you know, stuff that you want done exactly right for, you know, Public safety. Reasons. <laughs> well, I mean, you would you want a loose gas line, you know, in your house, or you know, right? It's well, bad fast. I believe the line from the governor was, "We'll we'll let you know soon what our <laughs> what our plans are with the plumbing yeah, board." So like, stay tuned right, to all our listeners. Right, and the, and the thing is, like as, as Ross pointed out, you know, it begs these questions of like, if you could do it with this, why couldn't you have done it last session? Right. You know, some people, you know, some of. Abbott's more fervent critics, you know, calling it a, a power grab. Uh, but at the same time, Plumbing I don't think you're going to see a, you're going to see an outcry from lawmakers to be brought back to Austin um, to uh, fix this issue. I don't you think, you know, he's you a know. former judge. He's a former attorney general. He's a lawyer. He should, you know, he knows his way around the law. Yeah, he may have found yeah. a, may have may found have a way. learned something in the last two years. Might, might have found a way. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, he's had the time to sign a few bills. What have we seen him sign so far? Uh, the big one that they've sort of made a show out of this week is the sex trafficking legislation. And, you know, this was one of Dennis Bonin's um, top items. You know, when they were at the very back there at the very beginning of the session and they said, you know, we want to do this and that. When they got to the also list, one of the top things on House Speaker, new House Speaker, Dennis Bonin's list was to get sex trafficking laws in line. They've been working on this for a long time. It's been a problem for a long time. It's a continuing problem in Texas and elsewhere. And, you know, they're trying to tighten the laws up. And, you know, this is one they're proud of and, you know, making a show of signing. So we have about 10 more days while Governor Greg Abbott's pen is like the most powerful tool in the state of Texas. Uh, what else are we expecting signatures on? I mean, landmark bills, anything smaller? What can you, what can you Pro tell us from Property taxes ball? and school finance come to mind. <laughs> yeah, the ceremonies for those. <laughs> Will um, they be live stream like be. SB4? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, right. I assume we'll have some very elaborate ceremonies with a lot of lawmakers perhaps. Well, uh, and haven't they in bills. the past done these things around kind of like a, the traveling road show? They'd sign right. them. They sign them for real somewhere in the, you know, down in the basement while they're working on plumbing. Exactly. And yeah. then, and then travel, <laughs> and then travel around the state and, you know, sign it in Fort Worth and Dallas and Houston. Right. And, well, it's right. getting too hot to do another one outside of the governor's mansion. Right. So they have to do it indoors. Right. There's the, the quote Chick-fil-A bill. I know you don't like calling it that, but um, <laughs> that made it to Abbott's desk, right? He has to sign that. Right. Has the option to make a show of, of signing that as well. Right. 
And what about vetoes? You know, he's pretty good at not telegraphing. Um, you know, to some extent, you know, a governor, you know, all governors telegraph a little bit, you know, go to legislators during the session and say, I wouldn't waste too much time trying to pass that thing because it ultimately will fail. You know, sometimes they signal that way. But he hasn't made a show or a practice over all three of his legislative terms as governor of publicly saying, you know, that one has an X mark on it. And, you know, so sometimes the vetoes are surprising as they were a couple of times at the end of the session when he was vetoing, I think you wrote about. Um, we both did. Yeah, both of you. Um, the the stuff that he vetoed uh, belonging to Democrats or authored by Democrats who were not giving David Whitley a, a pass. Um, the place where I'm watching really is in the budget. You know, they passed this giant budget. It's 15.7% bigger than the budget that they passed two years ago at this time. And that's sort of, you know, the same place on the timeline. That $216 billion budget got bigger uh, as time went on, but it started at 216. This one starts at $250 billion. Um, and I think they're going to be going through there looking for places where they can knock this or that off. There was a sort of an insidery fight a few years ago about, they have a thing in the budget called descriptive items. They're not necessarily a line item that says a dollar for this, a dollar for that, but they are descriptions that say the funds above shall be used for X, Y, and Z. And the governor, governors have generally regarded those as um, non, as, as protected from line item vetoes. Um, governor Abbott doesn't regard them that way, crossed some of them, uh, survived a challenge, the AG backed him up. And so, you know, he could go into some of the descriptive items in this budget and really get, you know, his fingerprints on it. I was going to ask, are there any, and I, I'm just asking this because I don't know, are there any bills beyond the budget where there's legitimate suspense right now, whether he's going to sign them? If I recall correctly, after the 2017 session, there was some question of whether, for example, he was going to sign the texting while driving ban, which he, he ultimately did and, and kind of downplayed it because he announced it during the special session press conference. But regardless, this time around, are there any bills that we're watching to see if um, he's, he's actually going to sign it or not? Well, I'll punt this to Alexa, but as we know, sometimes <laughs> <Stop the> data. <laughs> warning, warning. <laughs> vetoes can be sometimes more about a message to the author of a bill than a message about the content of the bill. And there are at least some Senate Democrats who think that their bills may be dying by his pen for that reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, from what we've heard from some of the Senate Democrats is that they are anticipating more vetoes. And I think those concerns were underlined on sine die about 20 minutes before Dan Patrick gaveled the Senate out when you had these four vetoes of, you know, seemingly uncontroversial for the most part. I think all of them, all but one had, you know, passed right. pretty easily out of both chambers that were vetoed and the governor announced it. And, you know, last session around, Emma and I looked this up, and last session he announced all the vetoes on the same day. Uh, pretty far, I think on the day, was it the last day of the veto? Two yeah, years after Sine Die. Right. Yeah, and so I think, you know, as far as some of the Senate Democrats are concerned, they are anticipating vetoes on that front. I don't think that there's really any other legislation like the texting while driving ban that yeah. everyone's sort of waiting out on. You got to watch yourself on those revenge vetoes because, you know, if you veto something, you know, I veto Senator Ura's bill. Um, sorry. Don't want to do She's that. Not gonna be you, have to, you have to be careful that you're not vetoing something with content that's going to blow back on you. So you right, got to find bills that are sort of innocuous, right? You know, a yeah. low water crossing at, you know, this intersection or something right. like that. And I'm not sure that the vetoes that we saw have a wide constituency, right? Where you would hear people 
sort of up in arms and say this could have saved my life kind of thing. Though Jose Rodriguez, um, the chair of the caucus, did say that his unsafe tire bill, I mean, he did frame it as a sort of life and death situation where it was sort of trying to clamp down on these tires that blow, you know, these blowouts on the highway and people die because of them. So that one was an interesting one from that end. But I just don't know that you that it would be strategic to go after bills that have large constituencies. Right. Or wealthy constituencies. Or wealthy. Um, one one bill he vetoed this year, he vetoed a similar version two years ago, is a measure by Judith Zaffarini, a Laredo Democrat, which has to do with the state's guardianship program, you know, better protections, specialized court systems for adults with these needs. And that isn't a particularly politically empowered group is, is sort of one theory from Democrats as well, that if you're looking for political retribution, maybe that's a good place to look. Right. Well, and Rodriguez's bill, he it had been vetoed last legislative session. Right. And he said, you know, we worked with the governor's office. We thought we fixed the issues he had in it and it still went down. Well, they might have fixed the issues. They didn't fix the issue. <laughs> there was a bigger issue going on right. that they did not address. Right. So if these are vetoes, if these vetoes are payback, what are they payback for? Can you talk us through sort of this last minute push by the governor to get his longtime aide, David Whitley, confirmed in the final days of session? Yeah. So David Whitley, you know, sort of more than embattled, I think, by the end of session, uh, was facing was up against the clock. He needed a confirmation vote by the Senate to stay in his job after the last day of the legislative session. And with that large clock dooming over all of our heads as we were waiting for Sunny Die, Abbott basically launched this, you know, full scale intensive trying to Hail Mary pass. Yeah. Uh, you know, attempting to lobby seemingly some of the Democrats that he thought were, I don't know, squishy or in any way possibly, you know, they could possibly flip after all of them had said they were no votes on Whitley. They needed uh, two votes from the Democrats. Gosh, let's they, not needed do this. Right. they needed votes. three votes. They needed either two to flip and one to walk if everyone was present. Right. So, um, you know, there, this included one-on-one meetings over the weekend. Um, you know, Democrats were on edge about a possible vote. At one point, Paul Betancourt, the chair of the Republican caucus in the Senate, went up to Rodriguez and said, you know, how would you guys feel about an up-and-down vote? But as long as you don't ask questions or protest or anything like that, the governor just wants to vote. Seemingly, you know a lieutenant at that point for this vote as well. And the Democrats basically said, you know, we have four to five hours of questions. And if you do that, we're basically going to kill everything that's under, you know, that's still left on the calendar on the last day for them to pass bills. So, but without, even without a confirmation vote, it's not all bad news for David Whitley. He's back at the governor's office right, uh, making yes. a cool 200000 from. He has been um, spotted walking up and down Congress Avenue by at least some <laughs> of the people who work with us. Uh, but yeah, he, <laughs> the People the Magazine yeah. paparazzi. <laughs> he, he was rehired by the governor's office in what is a new role. He, he left the governor's office in November to become secretary of state as the deputy chief of staff. Now he's in what? But the comptroller is classifying as a deputy director to role, um, but the governor's office is calling it a special advisor role, um, you know, basically as if the last six months didn't happen. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of thing where this was so drawn out. We've heard about how much the governor cares about David Whitley. He sees him as a son, blah, blah, blah. But I, I guess I was a little surprised that he wouldn't just go into the private sector and put all of this to bed at this point and instead, you know, the day after, you know, the week after the legislative session ended, you have an, he's back in the headlines once again. 
<laughs> as we were joking about in the newsroom, there were so many Democrats that were saying, you know, oh, he's a good guy, just not the right guy for Secretary of right. State. And so I guess Abbott's office was like, all right, we'll just put him in a different <laughs> you, office. You, you know, like him so. so much, exactly. you still get to work with <laughs> well, him. Well, you know, and I, I think it's significant that, you know, they didn't disassociate from somebody who was embroiled in a scandal that cost the state and federal court, you know, sort of a rebuke. The, the courts basically said, undo this, pay the lawyers on the other side, you know, go forth and sin yeah. no more. Usually that's the kind of thing that you, you know, you see politicians look at their aides, how much, however much they like them and say, um, sorry, that went badly. Um, hope you get the tire marks off your back, have a nice life. And not in this case. But I think if you, if you look at, at least on the voting rights front, when there have been, you know, I'm going to say this lightly, missteps in terms of violating the Constitution, violating the Voting Rights Act. Missteps in terms of violating the <laughs> Unconstitutional. You only violated the Constitution a little bit. You've, you've had these court fights before in which federal judges have scolded the state pretty intensely in some cases. And while there was not like a, you know, in the way Whitley was a face to the voter role review it, the share was sort of the blame was sort of shared upon various lawmakers and people involved, but one of them was Greg Abbott, right? Like this isn't new territory for him, right. and he has seemingly, you know, stayed by the side of those individuals, and and he, he himself has experienced it, so it's it's nothing new to him necessarily. Right. right. Part of my French, but is this not kind of a fuck you to the Texas Senate, which had you know six months to vet this guy and to consider whether to confirm him? ultimately decided not to and now is presumably going to have to work with him in future legislative sessions or in efforts with the they, governor's well, office. Well, they like him. <laughs> exactly. He's so likable. I mean, He's so you nice. You know, coming out in a few minutes is going to have his favorability <laughs> rating. <laughs> I mean, I think the thing, one of the things that was lost in sort of the, he's resigning right before he left is that in waiting until the last day to resign, even when you knew this wasn't going to happen for you, he now gives Abbott the ability to appoint whoever he wants for the role and for that person to serve in that role unconfirmed, unvetted in any way until, through the next legislative session. Well, at least until the end of the next one, right? Right. And so, right. and I think the idea that, you know, if, if this is a big responsibility that the Senate sees for itself, particularly given the fallout following this review, that he basically took that away from him. Whether that was an Abbott thing or a Whitley thing is unclear, but at the end of the day, that was the effect. Yeah, one thing too odd too, I've been a little curious throughout this thing I've raised it before where Dan Patrick has stood uh, in all of this. Obviously the numbers are the numbers within his caucus, but he clearly made a decision not to blow up the Senate floor by bringing up this, by bringing this nomination to a vote. Um, clearly made the calculation that despite, you know, his... Uh, ex you know, <laughs> exhaustively positive relationship with Abbott that he talks about so much that just wasn't worth um, derailing the Senate for this and, and, and really, I think, alienating a lot of people in the caucus uh, by, you know, if he were to try to kind of pull a sneak vote. And sometimes it comes down to something as mundane as attendance, right? Um, we've understand from the lieutenant governor's office that they had kind of an agreement with Senate Democrats. If you guys are out for legitimate right, yeah. reasons for for weddings for funerals for graduations if you're ill we're not going to sneak a vote through on the floor and i think that is kind of a bipartisan cordial well, approach but there it's, but it's a forced piece of bipartisanship you do it because the numbers are so tight and right. you want to pass other bills and right. you know if you make the democrats you you get them riled you know they only need a couple of votes to um peel to start losing support for things that they really want to pass. So you have to decide, you know, in the scheme of things, how important is this Whitley vote and how many of the 
issues that I really care about am I willing to give up Democratic votes for and, and possibly passage of? And I think, you know, yeah. the votes are so close in the Senate that they couldn't afford to do that. Right. Um, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com and Studio 919. Record your next podcast with or without a live studio audience steps away from the Texas State Capitol in downtown Austin. Book today at studio919.org. And that's where we are today. You can all vouch for it. Hello. Without an audience. All right, from a legislative session back to elections, this weekend we've got mayoral runoff races coming up in two major Texas cities. Patrick, what are you watching for? Yeah, so we've got Dallas and San Antonio. Um, I would argue a little more drama in San Antonio where the incumbent mayor, Ron Nirenberg, is uh, fighting for a second term against challenger Greg Brockhaus, who's a a city council member. San Antonio mayoral races over the past few cycles have been incredibly volatile. I believe this is the third San Antonio mayoral race in a row that has gone to a runoff involving the incumbent. Um, and so clearly it's kind of politically choppy waters when it tough, comes to picking town, the mayor in, in, San, in San Antonio. Um, Nirenberg was the first place finisher in the first round, but I think only by a few points. Um, and I think it was like 49, 46 with Brockhouse getting 46. And so that's one uh, definitely to watch. Um, up in Dallas, uh, you have an open seat uh, mayoral runoff. The the mayor there, the incumbent mayor, Mike Rawlings, is term limited and therefore not seeking re-election. And the two people you have um, in the runoff there are Eric Johnson, st- a Democratic state representative uh, from Dallas. And then you have Scott Griggs, a member of the uh, city council there. Uh, Johnson finished a pretty strong uh, first place in the first round in a, in a pretty uh, crowded field. Um, and what you've seen since then is uh, pretty much every person of prominence in Dallas uh, rallying behind him, um, whether it's I think there's like four former mayors that are supporting him. He's put together a pretty good list. He's you know, kind of a bipartisan group I've gotten of so local, many emails. Yeah, a bipartisan like like group of local <laughs> congressmen. Um, you know, he's had the support of the city's business elite even before the, the first uh, election. Um, and Griggs is, is running – um, you know, as he has in, in previous races and as he's positioned himself on the city council as kind of an anti-establishment right. uh, contrarian voice. Um, you know, I'm sure Johnson would object to this, but the choice, it really is like an establishment versus anti-establishment matchup if you just look at uh, the just kind of bare bones endorsements. And, and, and Griggs has been playing up the police endorsement a lot and, exactly. and talking about yeah. Dallas crime a lot. And, you know, that seems to be the, his closing argument. Right. Gr- Griggs, you know, is making this kind of argument, um, you know, s- I hate to try to draw together two different mayoral races, but kind of like Brockhouse's in San Antonio, that, you know, city government should be focused on the basics first and foremost, you know, fixing the streets, making sure that when you call 911, police are there on time, um, and that once we, you know, <laughs> get those things figured out, then we can worry about big projects, you know, partnering with the suburbs and, you know, having all these, you know, flashy uh, things in the city. Um, I think that that's actually kind of a common thread between Brockhouse and, and Griggs in terms of the case that they're making. Well, I, I think it'll be this one. These two races in particular will be really interesting to look at the results uh, demographically. And if you break down where people are living and, and by race and ethnicity, because it's really interesting that in these big cities, you know, for the most part in Texas, long considered blue cities, democratic leaning. But in a lot of and 
largely because of their very diverse population and electorates. But a lot of the times you end up seeing these fights that very much so split along racial lines. And I mean, obviously, Texas is a place where voting is racially polarized in general. But it's really interesting to see that play out in mayoral races that are largely nonpartisan or, you know, quote unquote, nonpartisan. Well, you know, a great example of that is, you know, Eric Johnson's a Democrat and has a pretty liberal vote in the Texas House. And he's got all of these Republican business people endorsing him. I mean, to your point about establishment. Yeah. I just I feel like in in a lot of these cities, from what I've heard from folks on the ground, while, yes, they may be majority um, Hispanic or majority Hispanic and black in a combination, there is still this like old white power that still plays out, particularly in local races. And I think these two races will be really interesting to watch. We saw it a little bit with the Ivy Taylor race, um, but I think it'll be really interesting to watch the results along those lines. It was Nuremberg's predecessor in San Antonio. So in Dallas, it sounds like we're talking a lot about crime. A different issue has animated the San Antonio mayoral race. Again, the issue of Chick-fil-A. How, where do the two candidates sort of stack up on that? And how is that? All, all this fighting over sandwiches. It's. I thought we all liked chicken, right? Yeah, I would say that the chick- in San Antonio, the Chick-fil-A controversy has been one issue in the runoff. It hasn't been the dominant issue. Um, but in terms of, you know, what would draw attention statewide, I think that continues to be something that people are paying attention to. Um, you had uh, Ron Nirenberg as, as the mayor, um, you know, supporting the city council's decision to exclude Chick-fil-A from the airport. Um, you know, when the city council passed that measure, they cited uh, the company's, I think the quote was legacy of anti-LGBT uh, behavior or conduct. Um, Nirenberg has tried to defend it as a business decision, saying that, you know, Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday, so that's an empty store for or a dark storefront at the airport. Uh, on Sundays, we're not making money. Right. Um, Brockhouse, his challenger, um, has definitely aligned himself with folks who are uh, vocally opposed to that decision to exclude Chick-fil-A and view it as kind of like an attack on uh, religious freedom. Um, and so you've seen that split in that race. There's been a few other issues in that race. There's been uh, some years old uh, domestic assault allegations against Brockhouse that have come up uh, and that I'd argue have gotten a little more play during the runoff um, that he's, I think he's denied wrongdoing in each in each situation. I know the story may have may have changed a little bit, but you've seen issues like that come up in, in that as well. So things have gotten a little more personal. But it is really it's interesting that in the San Antonio race, more than the Dallas one, where you have someone who works at the Capitol, you've seen in the San Antonio race this like trying to lean on one side, trying to lean on you know the local you know to borrow a phrase from the legislative session bread and butter issues, while Ron Nirenberg has been you know he was at the Capitol fighting against the bathroom bill last legislative session and testifying in committee, you know, he has done some of the work that maybe his opponent is trying to say, like, that's not what we need to focus on at first. So, oh, absolutely. And it's yeah. interesting that you're seeing that play out more in San Antonio where you don't have a state elected official right. running. Well, you've, in the mayor's office in San Antonio, ever since Julian Castro left to go be HUD secretary in, I think, 2015, you have seen this push and pull between people who believe that you need to have this bold, visionary uh, you know, right. blueprint for the city to make it a you know internationally known city, and then folks who uh, aren't necessarily opposed to that, but believe that the priority needs to be put on services closer to home, and some of, as you pointed out, the bread and butter issues. Yeah, I think I saw it described in a great Express news story as the choice between aspirational government and limited government, with Nirenberg being on 
the aspirational side of things, Brockhouse being the limited side of things. Um, in our last few minutes here, let's touch on a, a former San Antonio mayor. As you mentioned, uh, we have our two Democratic candidates for president from Texas making some major moves in the last week. Can you catch us up? Yeah. Well, um, Julian Castro put out a, I think it was his third major policy proposal of his presidential campaign, and it's on uh, police reform, um, you know, putting out some ideas to try to prevent um, or at least prevent the kind of environments that lead to these um, uh, shootings of unarmed people of color that have drawn national outrage over the past several years. Um, and it's kind of interesting because uh, it's it's an issue. I mean, a lot of the presidential candidates are talking about criminal justice reform, uh, but few of them have elaborated on this specific kind of piece of criminal justice reform, which is police accountability and basically policing the police. And so I think Castro um, was smart to focus on that just because it's an area where a lot of uh, other candidates have not uh, honed in on. Um, and so that is uh, his third uh, policy proposal. His first one was immigration, uh, which uh, at the time was the most detailed, most comprehensive immigration plan uh, put out by any candidate. It was another example of him uh, trying to uh, put out policy in an area that you know other candidates have not been um, you know treading as heavily on, or have been keeping their distance from, or just kind of sticking to the normal talking points. Um, and so I think Castro has drawn attention um, for at least being uh, willing to wade into those areas in a very serious and substantive way. Um, as far as Beto O'Rourke is concerned, he put out another policy proposal uh, today. Um, it's a pretty broad proposal focused on voting rights, focused on campaign finance, uh, focused on uh, ethics uh, for members of Congress. Um, a lot of it is stuff that we've heard from him on the campaign trail before, and it also is somewhat modeled after H.R. 1, which is this sweeping election reform bill that the new Democratic majority in the U.S. House uh, has prioritized. Um, but he nonetheless gets a, a lot more detailed in some areas than he has before and puts forward some, some new ideas. One of the things that stood out to me was in the term limit section of this um, proposal, O'Rourke suggests 18-year term limits for U.S. Supreme Court justices that would require a constitutional amendment, um, which is interesting because he's long been a proponent of term limits for members of Congress, um, but has not until now uh, come out explicitly in support of term limits for Supreme Court justices. And this all uh, dovetails with this discussion that Democrats are having nationally about given the Republican, what they view as Republican obstruction in the Senate, um, and in other parts of the Republican Party, whether it's time to actually start talking about tweaking and changing the, the makeup and the composition of the, of the U.S. Supreme Court. That's interesting. That was a radical idea. That was a know, Rick Perry um, plank in his presidential race, too. He won the right. 18-year, 18-year Right, and it was also, it. yeah, it was also a um, Ted Cruz, someone who Beto Rourke knows well, um, had proposed term limits on Supreme Court justices uh, in the middle of the 2016 presidential race. Right. The Texas plan, apparently. Right. Uh, well, that's all the time we have. Thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, the University of Texas at San Antonio, Texas Children's Hospital, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, and Studio 919. On behalf of Ross, Alexa, Petra, Patrick, and our producers, Michael Ray and Bobby, this is Emma. Thanks for listening. You